Listener Production. Laurie Gottlieb is a psychotherapist, nationally recognised journalist and weekly Dear Therapist columnist for The Atlantic. She blends her clinical experience with the latest research and cultural developments to help people live better. Laurie says, I believe that our stories form the core of our lives and give them deeper meaning. As a writer, I ask, what does the protagonist want and what is keeping that person from getting it? As a therapist, I ask the same questions. In this heartfelt conversation, Laurie and I traverse why we are unreliable narrators of our lives, dealing with grief and the importance of listening. I think as a listener, it's really important to, first of all, understand what is the person wanting out of the conversation. And then also when you listen, it's not about waiting for the person to finish talking and you've been rehearsing in your head what you were going to say and the point that you've been trying to make for the last 60 seconds. That's not listening. Listening is not fixing. Listening is not, you know what you should do? You know, listening, it's not just listening to the words, it's listening to the body language, listening to, you know, what is going on for this person right now? Can I imagine what their experience is like? Can I really get into their experience? Really hearing what their experience is like is what most people want. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Laurie Gottlieb is a New York Times bestselling author of many books, including Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is being adapted as a television series. In this episode, you will learn how not only to support others through their journey, but how we hold the power to live the most miraculous life. Laurie, knowing everything you do about the human mind and having had thousands of conversations as a therapist, does that help you as a friend and a mother? You know, I really don't bring my work as a therapist into my personal relationships. I think that would get very annoying for people. Yes. Um, But I do think that understanding myself better and having been to therapy myself has helped me a lot as both a friend and especially as a mother. I think that when you become a parent, every sort of psychological issue that you've ever had, um, all of a sudden that you've never thought about for years and years <laughs> comes up. Um, and so I think it's really important for people to make sure that um, they understand themselves and, and how they relate to people, uh, you know, when they, when they move through life. Yes. And obviously your path as a therapist came through you doing a lot of other things first and you actually worked in entertainment for a while. Can you take us through that path and then what made you end up in the realm of therapy? Yeah, of course. So I took a very non-linear path to becoming a therapist. When I graduated from college, I started working first in film development in Los Angeles, and then I moved over to network TV and I was working as a junior executive at NBC And it was the year at NBC that two big shows premiered. One was called ER and the other was called Friends. And um, we had a consultant on ER who was an emergency room physician. And I spent a lot of time in the ER supposedly doing research. Um, But I really fell in love with the work that he was doing. And I felt like it was one thing to tell fictional stories 
on a television show, which were really rich, deep human stories. But it's another to watch people come into an emergency room and have that inflection point in life where, you know, you don't go to an emergency room because you expected something to happen. Sometimes somebody would come in and they'd say, I have these headaches and they'd leave and find out they have a brain tumor. Right. And so it's these really critical moments in people's lives. And so I ended up going to medical school and I went up to Stanford. And when I was at Stanford um, here in the U.S., um, managed care was coming in, which was basically, basically meant that I wouldn't really be able to practice in the way that I wanted to practice. And there would be a lot of, you know, seeing lots of people for very short appointments and lots of uh, oversight by insurance companies. And so I left medical school to become a journalist where I felt like I can really go and tell people's stories. Mm. And I worked as a journalist. and I still do. Um, I still write her, obviously, with maybe you should talk to someone. Um, but I um, I ended up, uh, you know, having a baby during that time. And I remember as a new parent when I would get deliveries all the time with all the all the supplies that you need for a new baby. And the UPS guy would come and I would detain him in conversation when he would make his deliveries. And he hated that. And he would like back away from my door. And finally, he would tiptoe to my door really quietly. So I wouldn't even know he was there and I couldn't start a conversation with him. And so I thought maybe I should, uh, you know, I needed sort of adult, uh, an adult identity during the day that was separate from, um, you know, being a parent. And I called up the dean at Stanford Medical School and I said, maybe I should come back and be a psychiatrist. And she said, you know, psychiatry is a lot about medication management. Why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and do the deeper, longer work that you want to do? And it was a great, it was great advice. And that's what I did. And so I feel like I went from telling people stories as a journalist Mm. to really helping people to change their stories as a therapist. And recently I did a TED talk about changing our stories And I feel like a lot of my work as a therapist is really being an editor. And that's where the writing background comes in because I feel like people come in, we're all unreliable narrators. People come in with a faulty narrative and they're stuck. They don't know how to get to the next chapter and I'm there to help them edit their stories. Why are we unreliable narrators of our stories when when we think that we're not? Yeah. I mean, I think it's because we see the world through our particular lens. Mm. And sometimes it's hard to imagine that there are many versions of the very same story that are all equally true. They're just different parts of the story. So what are the parts of the story that a certain person is emphasizing or minimizing, leaving in or leaving out? Um, you know, who are the supporting characters in the story? Who are the, who are the major characters in the story? Um, you know, who are the villains and who are the heroes? You ask three people involved in the same story and they will tell you three different versions of that story. Why do you think that is that, as you've said, and I've seen in my research before that, you know, you can have sisters that grow up and the same thing happens to them. And as you said, their stories are so completely different or one has such a positive experience and the other a negative. What is it with that individual person that they would process a situation so differently from another? Well, part of it is that we're just born with different temperaments, right? Mm. So that's why you can have siblings who, um, you know, have vastly different experiences as children, even though they all grew up in the same household. 
Um, and part of it is that our parents relate to each sibling differently. Mm. So depending on what we bring up in our parents, um, you know, whether that's um, similarities to your parents or differences from your parent, um, you know, there are there are differences in how our parents um, interact with us, even if they don't try to act differently. Um, and, and I think also, again, this part of like the version of the story, right? So, um, you know, we see the part that through our lens and we often have trouble perspective taking, we can't imagine the other person's perspective. Um, and, and then when we hear the other person's perspective, sometimes we, you know, we try to argue with it like, well, that's not true. Or you don't really feel that way. People will say, it's like, no, the person does feel that way. You can't really talk someone out of their feelings. You might, you might not agree with their account of what happened. You may have seen it differently, but feelings are feelings. And I see so often when people have different perspectives, they try to talk somebody out of their feelings. Mm. We, we do this as parents a lot with our kids. Yes. So our, our kids, you know, a feeling makes us uncomfortable in somebody else. And, and we don't like that. So our kids might say, you know, I'm really sad about this, or I'm really anxious about this. And we'll say, oh, don't be sad. Let's go have some ice cream or don't be worried. Um, you know, don't, there's nothing to worry about. And so what, what the child learns is that it's not okay to feel whatever you're feeling. And, um, and, and really the reason that the parent is talking the kid out of them is because those feelings are making the parent uncomfortable. Yes. Laurie, I think I say that because I think, you know, you saying that now when your child tells you they're sad, you start feeling sad because you don't want your child to feel sad. What should we be saying instead? Well, first of all, um, it's good that your child notices that that they're feeling sad mm. because they need to be able to sit with their feelings. And I think that we ascribe negativity to certain feelings. We say it's bad to feel sad or it's bad to feel anxious. Our feelings are really useful to us. So our feelings are like a compass. They tell us what we want. So if you don't know that you're sad, if you don't, if you just push it away, you can't do anything to make the situation better. If you don't know why you're anxious, you can't do anything to improve the situation. They're, they're pointing us in a direction. Even envy, people don't want to feel. And I always say, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. And so what do people do when they're not feeling their feelings? They try to push them down, but they'll come out. They don't go away. They'll come out in too much food or too much alcohol or insomnia or a short temperedness or relational difficulties um, or that mindless scrolling that we all do through the Internet. Right. Um, a colleague of mine says that the Internet is the most effective short term non-prescription painkiller out yes. there. So so that's what happens so if we teach our kids don't feel then they will start to push away their feelings and they won't be able to use their feelings to help them see what needs to change. So what can we do instead? We can use three simple words. Tell me more. Mm. The kid says, I'm sad. We say, tell me more. And what that does is it helps them to think aloud. It helps them to kind of think through what they're experiencing and just being understood and having someone say, yeah, I understand. I see you. I hear you. I understand you. That alone brings some relief. I think sometimes when we just voice what we're so sad about, we realize sometimes that it's not as bad as what we think it is. And, you know, I would think I was saying this to someone the other day and the person sometimes doesn't even need to say anything back. Once it's actually been voiced out loud, it's like you just hear that reflection and you're like, what, what was I so upset about? Yeah, it diffuses it. 
It diffuses yes. it. And it, there's a sense of relief that you're not alone, that it, you know, like now somebody else understands you just being understood. You know, when I see couples in my therapy practice, often they'll say, you know, the three words that they want to hear the most aren't necessarily, I love you. It's, I understand you. Mm. What has come out of you being a therapist that has fulfilled you? Oh, so much. I mean, I feel like there's so much meaning in what I do. And that's because I feel like there, I think that people have this misperception of therapy that, um, you know, they'll say, isn't it depressing hearing all these difficult stories all day? I think it's the opposite because that's not what therapy is. Mm. Therapy is watching people come in who've been stuck for a very long time. And all of a sudden they start to see the world in a different way. They start to see themselves in a different way and they start to see their own role in what's been holding them back. And they start to take responsibility for changing their lives. And when they do that, I see these heroic moments. I see people grow and change and transform. Um, you know, I, I like to say that um, change comes about from the hundreds of small, almost imperceptible steps that we take along the mm. way. And I get to see that every week. And you see people live much better lives from going through this process. So I think if anything, my job is incredibly hopeful and inspiring. Would you recommend that people go see therapists, even if they don't have something that seems so monumental in their lives, but they just want to work through a few issues? I feel like therapy is similar to getting a really good second opinion on your life mm. from someone who is not in your life. And that's the key because the people who are in your life, they are, you know, they're not objective about it. And I think that when you go in and you start talking to someone and you can be, you know, take off the mask and, uh, and I don't mean the COVID mask, I mean the emotional mask yes. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and really say, here is who I am and here is what is happening. And to get somebody to really help you to clarify what is going on and what's getting in the way can be so useful. Mm. So I think that we have this idea that about psychological health that's different from our idea about physical health. When something feels off uh, emotionally, we often minimize it. We kind of dismiss it and say, well, it's not that bad or other people have it worse. We don't do that with our physical health. If we break our arm, we don't say, oh, well, someone else has cancer. So it's not really that bad. I'm not going to go get a cast for yes. my arm. Right. But what happens is people don't come into my office until they're having the equivalent of, let's say, an emotional heart attack. Yeah. Right. It's really bad. And first of all, they've suffered unnecessarily for a long time when they do that. But also it's harder to treat at that point. I could have helped them so much more easily if they had come in when they first started feeling like something isn't right. Something is off. Yes, that's so true. And you've got this fabulous book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is now also becoming a TV series. In it, you are extremely vulnerable and you talk about your breakup that occurs with your fiancé at the time. And it happens in what seems like such a cruel, cruel way. Can you take us through that and how it was that you as a therapist ended up having to seek therapy yourself? Yeah. So this goes back to that um, idea that I was talking about where we all 
have our versions of the story that are very much ours. And so my version of the story at the time Mm. was that um, my boyfriend and I had been dating for a couple of years, starting when my son was six. So now at this point in the book, he's eight. And my, we had just gotten movie tickets for the weekend as we were, you know, planning what we were doing that weekend. And I, I noticed that he's, there's this weird sort of silence between us. And I ask him what's up and he says nothing, but I know something's up because there's just some vibe that I think we all have with the person that we are, who's our significant other. And, um, and it turns out that he says, you know, I've been thinking that I don't want to live with a kid under my roof for the next 10 years, which was a complete shock to me because it wasn't as though my, my young child had been hiding in the closet the entire time <laughs> we were dating. Um, and so my version of the story was um, what my friend's version of the story was, which was, you know, he's, he's awful. He's a jerk. How could he do this? Um, and and I, I ultimately decide to go to therapy because I'm really having a hard time managing, um, you know, the shock of this of this breakup. Everything is just turned upside down. We were about to move in together. We were, you know, planning to spend our lives together. And um, and I expect that my therapist is going to back me up. That my therapist is going to validate my version of the story and say, "You're right. That's awful. He was terrible." Um, and I write in, in maybe you should talk to someone about the difference between idiot compassion and wise yes. compassion. So, idiot compassion is what our friends do, and what my friends did in this situation is we back up people's stories. Mm. Right? We say, "Yeah, that person's terrible. You know, you were right. They were wrong." Wise compassion is where. You, a therapist will hold up a mirror to you and help you to see yourself and your situation in a way that maybe you haven't been willing or able to do. Mm. So, um, so when I go to therapy, my therapist pretty much, uh, you know, catches on to this one phrase that I utter where I'm talking about. Now I've wasted all this time with him and half my life is over. And he gloms on to that phrase, half my life is over. And that ends up being the beginning of what the therapy is really about and what I really needed to be there for. And the boyfriend incident, as I call it in the book, is really the the catalyst, the event that gets me into therapy, but it's not what I really needed to be talking about in therapy. So I think the, you know, I talk in, in the book about the difference between sort of the presenting problem, what people come in with. Yes. And I always say that I'm listening for the music under the lyrics, mm. that the lyrics are, you know, there was this breakup. The music is what is the underlying struggle or pattern that got you into the situation in the first place? And that's where the work happens. How was it for you? Because in the book, it is quite even a struggle at the start to even find a therapist to go to being a therapist yourself. And also that ego of I'm a therapist and I've got to go now see a therapist. Yeah. Well, I think that it's kind of a a, a weirdly kept secret Mm. because it shouldn't be a secret. But therapists, of course, go to therapists, right? I say at the very beginning of maybe you should talk to someone that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. And that's why I wanted, you know, in the book, I follow four patients as they go through their various dilemmas and struggles. And then there's a fifth patient in the book who's me as I end up going to my therapist for, for my struggle. And, um, and I, I thought it was really important to include myself because I feel like we're all more the same than we are different. And you can see that in the book, even though all five of us seem wildly different from one another on the surface in terms of, 
you know, just who we are in the world, our age, our gender, our presenting problem, our histories, our personalities. And we're all struggling with these universal questions that I think every single one of us, if you're human, um, has asked ourselves. What are those universal questions? They're the questions about how can I love and be loved? Mm. Um, You know, they're the questions about freedom. They're the questions about mortality. Um, You know, there are the questions about how we relate in the world. Um, There are questions about identity, all of those questions. What do you see as the most common theme that people come into therapy about? Um, I, I, I think that they come in for so many different reasons. So I don't know that there's one thing. Um, I would say if you had to kind of put it all in one bucket, I would say they're stuck somewhere. Mm. That something is keeping them stuck, that they are stuck in a cycle. They are stuck in a, a relationship pattern. They are stuck where they can't move forward in life goals that they have. Um, they are stuck in a, a depression. They are stuck in a cycle of anxiety. I would say it's a stuckness of some sort. And you say in the book, we grow from pain and hardship. How have you discovered that? Well, I think that we learn certainly from things that have been painful for us. Mm. And I think there are lots of people who are so afraid to take risks, especially with their hearts. They are so afraid to take risks because they are afraid of the pain that might happen. It's sort of anticipatory pain. There's a woman in the book, Rita, that we follow, and she is so afraid to get into this new relationship because she has what we call cherophobia, which sounds funny, but it's a fear of joy. And that's because when she was growing up, every time she felt safe, every time she felt joy, something terrible would happen. You know, it would always get stomped on. And so she didn't trust joy. She didn't trust it to last. And the pain that would come when the joy would be taken away was too much to bear. And so it's easier not to put yourself in a position where you might experience joy. And so I think that, um, you know, for a lot of us, we are so afraid of going after what we want. We are so afraid of our own desire. We are so afraid to, um, you know, to finally land in the place that we want to land because it feels precarious. Why is that stepping into the unknown such a hard place for so many of us? Well, I think that humans don't do well with uncertainty. Mm. Um, You know, so many times, this is why change is so hard because with change comes loss, even with really positive change. You know, you're getting married, you're having a baby, you got a job promotion, whatever it might be. Um, People cling to the familiar. And, you know, even if the familiar is unpleasant or downright miserable, it's what you know. And so for people who are, who are used to a certain way of being, and all of a sudden they can be free, they can have something different, they grow up as adults, but they're still stuck in that childhood mindset. Um, they keep going after the same thing. It's sort of why people choose partners who are wildly inappropriate for them. Mm. It's why people, you know, kind of self-sabotage in all kinds of ways, professionally, personally. Um, because it's, it's, it's more comfortable, even though they don't like it, it's more comfortable to stay in the familiar place than to go into this place that feels wholly unfamiliar to them. It's like, it's like being plopped into a foreign land and not knowing the customs in that land. How have you seen people during COVID, how have you seen them cope with life? You know, um, I think that a lot of people are experiencing um, anxiety, sadness, mm. frustration. Um, but what I really 
like to talk about with people is there's a difference between productive anxiety and unproductive anxiety. Mm. So productive anxiety is when we're reasonably worried about something. And so that, that allows us to take measures to protect ourselves. So we're reasonably worried about the spread of the coronavirus. So we're doing all the things we need to do with, you know, stay at home and masks and those kinds of things. Um, you know, if we weren't worried about it, we would just act like it wasn't there. And lots of people would get very, very ill and die. Yes. Um, Unproductive anxiety, on the other hand, is obsessive rumination. It's reading the headlines every hour. It is thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow and next month and a year from now. It's catastrophizing and futurizing, um, worrying, staying up late, worrying about you know something that hasn't happened yet and may never happen. That it's not productive in any way. It, there's no other action you can take than what you're already doing. So what I think really helps people in this moment is to stay very much focused on the present mm. and to make sure that they are, you know, we're talking so much about taking care of our physical immune systems that they're taking care of their psychological immune systems. So what are the things that help you to stay healthy psychologically? Sleep well, um, eat well, get outside and exercise, connect with people, connection, 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 right? Yes. Um, connect with the people who matter to you. So this is a really good time where I think people are saying, oh, I'm noticing what relationships nourish me and what relationships deplete me. Mm. And I'm really not going to spend any sort of emotional real estate on those that deplete me. So I think it's a time when people are saying, I'm prioritizing things now. And, and it shouldn't take, there's a woman in the book that I treat who has a, a young woman who comes back from her honeymoon and, and, and she ends up with this cancer diagnosis. And she says, why does it take a terminal diagnosis for people to live with intention? And I think the same can be said of COVID. Why does it take a global pandemic for people to say, what is meaningful to me? What is my purpose? What nourishes me? Um, and, and I think that it's been a time of reckoning for a lot of people, but I hope that as we emerge from COVID, that people will live with the same kind of intentionality in their lives. A lot of us have this neural loop that plays over, obviously, especially when something negative happens. Why as humans do we choose to suffer like that? Well, I think that sometimes we don't know how to manage our anxiety and so we keep feeding it. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, it's kind of a way of numbing out. It's like, I'll just keep like mindlessly scrolling through the headlines. Um, I will like lie awake at night and think about things that haven't happened yet in the future, but these horrible things that might happen <laughs> or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I, I think it's a, a way of avoiding, you know, there's uh, avoiding is a way of coping by not actually needing to cope. It would be much better for people to actually cope with what they're feeling than to try to avoid their feeling and to try to cope in these maladaptive ways. You talk about this beautiful concept in the book, the Italy flight plan changing to the Holland flight plan. Can you take us through that? Yeah, so this is, um, this is a story that was uh, written by um, somebody else and I, and I, a patient mentions it to me, um, because it, it's really about, we think that we know where we're going mm. in life. Right. So it's, it's, it's sort of this metaphor of, um, you know, this is written by a woman whose um, son has down syndrome 
And she said, you know, this is what it's like. You get on the, you, you're going to have a baby. You, you, you know, it's like, you're really excited. You get all prepared. It's like, you're getting on the plane and you think you're going to Italy. Right. And, you know, then you land and all of a sudden they say, welcome to Holland. And you think, wait a minute, what? I was going to Italy and everybody else got to Italy and they're doing all the things that you would do in Italy. And you are sitting there stuck in Holland. And, it's not that Holland is bad. It's that it's different. Mm. And if you can't realize that, okay, this is a different path than I was, than I meant to take, but it, there's also beauty and joy here. You know, Holland has Rembrandts. Holland has tulips. Holland has all of those things. So it's, it's really important, I think, when life throws you curveballs that you're able to roll with that. And I think so many people get thrown off because they, they're, so, um, they're so married to a certain script for how their life is supposed to go. And so I think that chapter was really about what happens when life does throw us curveballs. Yeah, it's an extraordinary concept and something that we can all put into our everyday lives. You use an example of a friend of yours that is a therapist and she is in Starbucks one day and she ends up breaking down. You can tell us the story. And a patient of hers sees her in that in that in that state. How is it that we don't look upon our therapists as being human as well? Yeah. So this was a colleague of mine, and she and her husband were trying to have a baby, and she was struggling with fertility. And she was in a Starbucks when she'd finally gotten pregnant, and she was in a Starbucks when she got a call from her physician saying that the pregnancy wasn't viable and she broke down and started crying. And it just so happened that at that moment, a patient walked in, saw the crying therapist on the phone, walked out of the Starbucks and never came back to therapy. And so I think it's interesting because, um, you know, on the one hand, of course, we don't share our personal lives mm. in the room with our patients, but we use our humanity every minute of every session to help people through their own struggles. And I think that there are these two tropes of therapists in the popular culture. They're sort of the, the blank slate, you know, the therapist who kind of says, aha, and isn't really, you know, isn't really um, interacting with you very much. And, and I think nobody really wants to talk to a brick wall or talk to a robot. And then the other kind of trope in the media is, um, you know, the, the, the hot mess, the train wreck, the, the therapist whose life is falling apart and they can't manage their own life. And neither of those is true. And that's why with the, with the TV show, you know, it's really important to me that this is a show not about a therapist, right. But about a person who happens to be a therapist. Yes. And that might sound like splitting hairs, but, but there's a difference between, you know, all of the cliches about therapists and what I'm trying to do. And maybe you should talk to someone is show, you know, the, the humanity of therapists and, mm. and show how therapists are just, you know, normal human beings who also go through their own struggles, but we're also trained to help people through their struggles. And so I think it's really interesting that when that patient saw the therapist in the Starbucks, that that person, you know, was so discombobulated by that, that by the fact that this person was human and was having a very human reaction to something yes, um, that they just could not get themselves to go back. You talk about, you know, having the human side of being a therapist and you have a patient that you touched on before that uh, is dying of cancer. And it's such a, it's a beautiful story. And she says to you, she wants to stay, I love this bit, she wants to stay with you. She doesn't want to go to one of those cancer therapists because there are so many affirmations on their walls and she couldn't bear looking at them. It's, it's very, it's very amusing. But there is a point in the book where she tells you that she loves you. Yeah. 
How how was that? And you you tell her you love her back. Yeah, you know, and again, that's that's the humanity. So I mm. think that in this, I think that when we're training to be therapists, I think there's this idea of you know what it's like to be a therapist. But you need that training. You need to know. You know, you need to kind of. It's almost like if you're trying to be a pianist you need to know the scales perfectly and then you can improvise. And I think the same is true of being a therapist that once you know the techniques really well, um, then you can improvise and you can bring your personality into the room. And I don't mean that you're crossing boundaries and you're sharing things about your personal life. I mean that you're bringing your authentic self into the room. Um, And so in that moment, when Julie says to me um, that she loves me and, you know, she's dying and she says that um, I, um, you know, I could, I could stand on ceremony and, and kind of do something therapeutic with that, or I could just be real and human and say what I was really feeling, which is that I had come to love her too. Mm. And even at at her funeral, um, you know, she had asked me, she very much wanted me to be at her funeral and so did her husband. And um, that's a thing that some therapists won't do, but I had made her that commitment. She'd asked me if I would stay with her until she died in this, however long that was, however many years that she was going to have. And then she wanted me to go to her funeral and I made her that promise. And so when I went, I tried not to interact with people so that I wouldn't get questions about, well, how did you know Julie? Yeah, yeah. Um, but as I was leaving, as I tried to kind of sneak out, um, somebody, you know, in conversation said, how did you know Julie? And the first thing that came to mind, which was both true and also protected her confidentiality was I said, she was a friend. Yes. Because I really felt that she was a friend. How do you deal with that trauma, Laurie? You know, you write in the book that when this, this bit was quite chilling, actually, that when you were doing your med training there, you heard the horrendous screeching one day of a woman and then the same horrendous screeching and her husband had arrived and their three-year-old child had drowned. And you talk about seeing patients who have lost their children, their siblings, their parents. How do you not carry that and break down from that? I think grief is part of the human condition. We all experience loss. And I think that it's a real privilege to help people with their loss. And, you know, these are things that that they carry with them throughout their lives. So there's this idea that, you know, people are supposed to move on from, you know, from these, these tremendous losses. Mm. And, and really, that's not the work that we're doing. Um, you know, I think that it's a testament to the love that they lost, that they will carry this with them. And I think we all carry inside of us the people that have meant the most to us. And so really it's it's about helping people to move forward in life while also holding the loss. And, um, and, and so I don't take that home with me, um, but I certainly think about my patients as you see, and maybe you should talk to someone that, um, you know, one of the things that my patients said after reading the book, the ones that I wrote about mm. in the book, they said, I knew that you cared about me when we were working together, but I didn't know how much you thought about me, right? Like they didn't know, like if they came late, I wondered, well, what's going on with them? Or if, you know, if they didn't show up or something happened or, you know, or just something happened in their lives and I would think about it during the week, you know, I wonder how they're doing. Um, They didn't realize how much I had them in mind. are you able to not take those tragic moments 
away with you and think about them in the middle of the night? I think that they certainly touch me. Mm. But, um, you know, I think it's really important that as a, as a human being that if you're going to do this kind of work, that you have a really full life of your own, as I do. And I think I, you know, I, I, I'm busy in my life. And so I, I certainly have a lot of empathy for the tragedy that people experience. Um, but also you have to remember that a lot of what we're doing in therapy isn't so much about tragedy. It, mm. It's certainly there. Um, you can read about it, you know, some of some of those instances in, in the book. But there's also a lot of laughter, as you can see in the book. Yes. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like, you know, one of the patients that I follow in the book is this young woman in her 20s who keeps dating the wrong guys. And, you know, she thinks it's about the guys and she doesn't realize that, you know, she keeps, she keeps, um, she almost has radar for guys who are going to disappoint her. She, at one point she starts hooking up with a guy from the waiting room. And I don't mean that they're actually hooking up in the waiting room, just to be clear. Um, <laughs> our office is definitely not that exciting, but, um, but, but she ends up hooking up with this guy that she meets in the waiting room. And then of course he then comes to therapy with his girlfriend. Right. So those are the kinds of guys that she gravitates toward. And once she starts realizing that you don't get a redo on your childhood, that, you know, a lot of people feel like, you know, I'm not going to change until my parents change. And they're not doing that consciously. They're not even aware that they're thinking that, Mm. but they keep repeating these patterns over and over. Like this time it will be different this time. um, You know, I will have a different experience than I had in my childhood, but yet they're picking people who will guarantee the same result that they had in their childhood until they work through this on their own. And so, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, I, I think humor, not laughing at this person, but laughing with her, um, as she realizes sort of the ridiculousness of the, of the human condition that we're all, we all do ridiculous things Mm. all the time. And I think that if we can be more compassionate with ourselves and laugh at ourselves, instead of self-flagellating, we will do ourselves uh, a greater service. Yes. You use a beautiful Viktor Franklin quote in the book, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, I think so much of the time what happens is we respond very immediately to something um, and we feel like we're trapped. We feel like we have no choice. And if we can take that breath, if we can say, wait a minute, I have a choice right now in how I respond to this, something very different will happen. It's kind of like um, my therapist, uh, who I call Wendell in the book, he said to me at one point, you remind me of this cartoon and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open, Mm. no bars. In other words, the prisoner is not in jail. But that's a lot of us, right? We feel like I'm in jail and I have yes. no choice and, and, and this person did this and I'm going to respond this way and then you're back doing the same old dance you always do and, and it ends up in disaster. And, and the reason that people don't walk around those bars, the, people, the reason that people don't look to the right or the left and say, wait a minute, I have choices here between stimulus and response. There is a space and that's where freedom lies. The reason we don't look at the path to freedom is because with freedom comes responsibility. And if we take responsibility for our own lives, then we are, you know, we're the ones who have to, um, have to look at our role in our situation. We're the ones who have to look at, wait a minute, what am I doing? We can't just blame it on external circumstances or other people. Yes. 
Why do people think if they set themselves up for the worst, so if it, it ends up happening, they'll be happy with that because they already thought about it before it happens? Why do we do that? Um, there are people who want to manage their expectations because, again, they've been sorely disappointed when um, they've had any hope. These are people who have not had things work out for them. And so it's very dangerous to feel any sense of hope because it can go quite awry. And so, um, and so they, they manage their expectations by trying to tamp down their hope. What should people do? Should they think like that or should they be hopeful? Well, I think that the more experiences that people have that are positive, the more they can see the world in a clearer way. And that means realistically. So it doesn't mean having this sort of, uh, you know, Pollyannish idea about the world. And it also doesn't mean having this doomsday idea about the world. Um, but it means seeing things in a realistic way and, and knowing that you can cope with what life brings you. And that you can get support for what life brings you. And I think that that's where connection comes in, where it's so important for people to be connected. One of the first things that I want to find out about people when they come in for therapy is I ask them how their lives are peopled. Mm. Who is in their life? What is the nature of these relationships? Do you think, you know, from all the work you've done, that our upbringing has a big impact on the way that we are as adults? I do think that it does. But at the same time, I also don't think it's destiny. Yes. And so I have, a, I have a new podcast. It's called Dear Therapists. And it's me and my co-host, Guy Winch. And we basically do a session uh, with somebody. And um, you hear us talking as therapists as we kind of talk about the case. And, and we do a session. We give them advice. And then at the end of the session, they have a week to try the advice. And then we hear how it worked out. And on, on a recent episode... Um, there was a somebody who was dealing with critical parents. He's an adult now. He just had his own child. He's married. And he said, you know, my parents were so critical and they're always critical. And I am afraid that they're going to be critical around my, now that I have a child, around my child. And I can handle it as an adult, but it's really hard for a child and I'm worried about that. But really he hadn't done the work. And so you can hear the episode, you can hear how important it is for us to inhabit our adult selves even when, you know, we, we still have the same kind of hurts that we might have had as children, um, you have to really understand that sometimes you're walking around with clothing that doesn't fit anymore. In other words, you're walking around with your childhood clothing, but you're a fully, fully fledged adult mm. and you have choices, you have freedom, you have agency. You're not the helpless child who was without resources, without um, options. You have them now. But sometimes we're imprisoned by our own minds. We're imprisoned by this idea of the past. So that's where therapy can really be helpful mm. in moving people forward. And I think as well, yeah. for a long time, people thought that you were hardwired, you know, by the age of 35, your brain wasn't going to change. And now we realise through neuroplasticity and all these other sort of things that that is not true. Well, that that's what I love about Rita in the book. Mm. So she's somebody who's about to turn 70 and she changes her life around in, in, you know, ways that in, in basically every way in terms of, you know, romantically, professionally, socially, um, she, in, in the span of a year. So I, I think it's never too late to change. And I think that's a really important point. Mm, that's it. It's so unbelievably important because I think people get to a stage in their life where they think, oh, I, I'm done. This is me and I can, I cannot change, but we can change at any age. 
yeah, we always have the choice. And the question is whether you're going to make that choice. I, I don't mean to say that there aren't incredibly difficult circumstances that people have to overcome or that there aren't you know, very difficult people that might be in their lives. Um, I remember when I was training, one of my clinical supervisors said, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes, right? So <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, so, you know, yes, there are, there are really trying circumstances in people, um, you know, sometimes in our lives. Um, but what I mean by we have the choices, we have the choice about how to respond. Mm. And, and, and that's where people forget that they have agency. And so what we can do in therapy is to help people to see how many choices they actually do have and, and what they actually do have agency over. Yes. How do we help people in our lives that are struggling? What is the best thing we can do to be there for another person? I think something we can do is to really listen. Mm. And, and I think we don't really, we don't have a lot of instruction growing up on how to listen. And one thing that I notice, especially from seeing couples, is often I will see, you know, somebody say to their partner, you never listen to me. And I will say to that person, how well do you listen to them? <laughs> right. So um, and, and what does listening actually mean? And a lot of times when we're listening, um, it would help if at the beginning of a conversation, you ask the person who has come to you to say, how can I help you in this conversation? Do you want me to just hear what you have to say? Do yes. you want to just vent? Um, do you want me to help come up with ideas? Do you want to hear my honest perspective? Do you want to hug? What do you want out of this conversation? And it would save people so much grief if they could be able to communicate that and people would get their needs met. And so I think as a listener, it's really important to, first of all, understand what is the person wanting out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then also when you listen, it's not about... Um, waiting for the person to finish talking and you've been rehearsing in your head what you were going to say and the point that you've been trying to make for the last 60 seconds, yes. that's not listening. Um, you know, your, your rebuttal, having that ready, that's not listening. Um, listening is not fixing. Listening is not, you know what you should do? Um, you know, listening is about, no, it's not just listening to the words, it's listening to the body language, listening to, you know, what is going on for this person right now? Can I imagine what their experience is like? Can I really get into their experience? Really hearing what their experience is like is what most people want. Do you find that you do a lot more listening than talking in your sessions? <laughs> well, it's funny. I remember when I was training, this, this, also another clinical supervisor said, you have two ears and one mouth. There's a reason for that ratio. Hilarious. And I think we can all, um, you know, keep that in our back pocket because it's true that I think as a new therapist, you know, the, the impulse was to do a lot of talking. Now, we do do a lot of talking because we want to move people forward. Mm -hmm. We aren't just sitting there saying, aha, uh -huh, and listening. But we're listening in a particular way. We're listening in a very focused way so that the conversation is very productive. Yes. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? Hmm. Um, I think the best advice I was ever given was to, um, to get a graduate degree in clinical psychology <laughs> when, I, I, when I was sort of struggling with how I wanted to um, manifest this desire that I had for really helping people to hear their stories, tell their stories and change their stories. Mm. When you look back at your life and all the extraordinary things that you've now done, what are you most grateful for? I think I'm most grateful for the fact that 
when I made all these changes in my life that there was a lot of pressure, I think, from lots of well-meaning people who had opinions and advice on how I was to live my life. Mm. And I think we all have this place of knowing inside of us. And it, sometimes it's very quiet and all the other voices drown it out with why something isn't practical, why something you know doesn't make sense, why something is going to be too hard, why we're not good enough for it, why we don't have enough talent or capability to do it. And I think that when you really get quiet, you can hear that place of knowing and use that as your North Star. And so every decision that I made may have looked impractical or, you know, it might have been confusing to people, but I knew exactly what I was doing. I don't mean that I knew exactly what I was doing, that I would end up as a therapist. I never in my wildest dreams thought I would end up as a therapist. But I was listening to that voice and I followed it. And I think that we need to pay more attention, all of us, to that place of knowing that we all have inside of us. How did you deal with the naysayers along your journey? I think there was some idea in my head that, you know, this, this came up a lot with Julie in the book, the mm. person who was the young woman who was dying of cancer, that life has a hundred percent mortality rate. And, you know, each of us is going to die. It's not just for other people. Um, and we don't know how or when usually. And I think that even before seeing Julie, I always had this idea that we're given one life to live and nobody gets to live your life, but you. Yes. And that was always very important to me. And so I think if we have this, this sense of um, this awareness of death sitting on one shoulder, and I don't mean in a morbid way or a creepy way, I just mean if you have this awareness that you have a limited time on this planet, um, I think that you live with more intentionality. And I think it makes it easier to um, not pay so much attention to the naysayers and really you know, take into account what people have to say. But at the end of the day, it's your life yes. and nobody else, you know, is the person living it. So who, who should be making those choices? Who should be driving that car? Mm. Why is it so hard for us as humans to deal with death when someone may have someone close to them die, yet people in their life find it so hard to even maybe even bring up, like, I'm sorry that that person died. Or it seems like people are so, they they get so awkward when someone has had or experienced a death in their life of of someone. Why, why are we wired like that? Yeah. Julie talked about this a lot. Mm. Um, there's a chapter and maybe you should, there's a chapter and maybe you should talk to someone called um, what not to say to a dying person. Yes. Cause people were so uncomfortable with the fact that she was dying and what made it even more uncomfortable for her was that people wouldn't acknowledge it. Yes. Right. So they would say things like, you know, well, did you get a second opinion? No, didn't bother, right? <laughs> Whether she's going to die. Um, <laughs> um, you know, or just, you know, things like, you know, the way that we minimize it. Like, we, we you know, I, I talk about ambiguous grief in the book too, about like, you know, if someone had a miscarriage, but they didn't lose, you know, an eight-year-old child, we think, okay, well, you know, we aren't going to really, um, you know, like they should be fine after a month, mm. right? Or someone has a breakup, but it wasn't a divorce of a marriage of 20 years, right? Um, we don't know how to just acknowledge someone's loss, yes. to acknowledge their pain, to acknowledge their grief. Um, and, and I think what people really want is to be seen in those moments. And so, um, you know, people would say, and they're all in the book, you know, these things that they would say to Julie that, 
she knew they were well-meaning, but it was, it was really painful for her instead of just, you know, I, so I said, well, what, what would you want people to say to you? And she said, I would just want them to say, I love you, or I'm so sorry this is happening, or just give me a hug, yeah. right? Just acknowledge that this is going on. Or people would be so careful around her. Like they wouldn't talk to her about like the shows they were binge watching or they wouldn't talk to her about something they saw on Twitter. And she's like, I still like Twitter. I still watch TV shows. I'm not dead yet. Yes. Right. And so they would like be so careful around her and they, they, you know, forgot that she was still living her life. Mm. Well, it's acknowledgement, isn't it? I remember when someone close to me died and, you know, there were people in my life that were so beautiful and would talk to me about it and really help me get through that process. But I remember some beautiful friends of mine never even brought it up. And I remember thinking, what's wrong with them? Why aren't they, why aren't they acknowledging it? And I realised that it just made them feel really uncomfortable. They weren't worse people or it's not that they didn't care they were just uncomfortable. Right. And an easy thing to say is, I'm so sorry. And how are you doing? Yes. And then that person gets to choose. Do I want to talk about it? Do I not want to talk about it? Just exactly. how are you doing? Something really genuine. And they could say, you know, it's hard and I'd rather not talk about it, but thank you for asking. Or they can say, oh, I'm so glad you asked and here's how I'm doing. Mm. It's so important for all of us to know. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? I think the lesson that it took me longest to learn was that you can't change other people. Mm. You can only change yourself, but you can influence other people. So everything that we do is a dance with somebody else. You know, you, you know, these people who get into the same argument all the time, right? It might yes. be about different things in terms of content of the argument, but it's the same underlying dynamic of the mm. argument. Um, and so they're doing these dance steps and it just doesn't work. So if one person does something different, if one person changes their dance steps, the other person either falls, falls flat on the dance floor or they have to change their dance steps too. And usually they change their dance steps. Mm, I love that. What is a life of greatness to you? I think a life of greatness is a life of wholeness. Um, it's a balanced life. It's an integrated life. Um, it's, it's a place of, I would say, peace. And peace doesn't mean that um, there's not difficulty or challenge or struggle, but that you know that you're able to manage the struggle. Mm. And, and I think it's a feeling of, again, I keep going back to this, but connectedness to other yes. people. Um, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, why should I go to therapy? It's not just for you. It's for your children, your parents, your partner, your friends, your roommates, your colleagues and society at large. That the more we can be at peace with ourselves, the more peaceful our world will be. Laurie Gottlieb, thank you for the beautiful conversation today. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others.
A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolich and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.